Matthew Hester, my friend. Wow, that was, that was amazing. Oh, my gosh. Hosting. Yeah, and thank you for the privilege. I have gleaned so much from this podcast, but then I'm <laughs> dropped in the middle of this Chris Green yes. <laughs> as my introduction. <laughs> and this conversation we just had was yeah. so good. Oh, my gosh. I know, man. Wow. I know. I- I was saying uh, before I hit record that uh, Chris is probably one of my favorite theologians right now. Um, he's, I've heard it said that he's hes incapable of having an un- uninteresting thought. Somebody said that once and I chuckled because I was, I was like, yeah. I'll witness to that. But <laughs> yeah, I, we witnessed that. But um, he's brilliant, but able to communicate uh, the profound uh, and simple ways, which is what I need. And the first 10 minutes, uh, he he was revealing his brilliance in ways where I finally was like, "Hey man, I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, around union, we talked about union. We talked about uh, um, God not being a master, the master-slave paradigm. So uh, we somehow got into got into the political yep. um, culture of the day. That was your fault. Would that be I a think. way of saying it? I think that was your fault. I actually, you even I said, you even said when I mentioned the year, all of a sudden I'm like, oh shoot, it's an election year. So it, it wasn't completely your fault. We're, we're victims of the moment. <laughs> I know. I know. And it's funny because he was very cautious at first, but uh, it ended up being a, a really profound conversation. And, and uh, I think it will be really encouraging for folks as yeah. we are in an election year. And yeah. that is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do politics, but uh, we do do the love of Jesus. And That's right. I think we got there. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. Man, tell folks, tell folks a little bit about you. Well, we've got you. So one of the things, guys, um, uh, with Derek being away, uh, I had mentioned that I wanted to have some guest hosts on. Matthew's a good friend of mine. We spent the weekend together uh, a little while back, a couple weekends ago. And um, but uh, he's the first guest host, and uh, thrilled to have you, bro. And we'll do this again. But share a little bit about who you are and what you're doing. Well, first we've had you on as a guest as well. Yes, I've been a guest a couple times, and uh, you've been a guest on my podcast as well. Uh, But this is an absolute privilege. When you texted me, I was actually again. I don't want people to feel like I live at the beach, but I scored kind of two weekends (laughs) in a row, and I'm literally just in the hot tub, and I get this text: "Hey, uh, bro, would you consider you know co-hosting this podcast episode with Chris?" And I'm like. I'm just staring at my phone and Megan's like, what's going on? I'm like, you won't believe this text I just got. So uh, oh, very honored. I, I love this community, <laughs> love this podcast and to be yeah. able to, to co-host with you, especially with Chris, uh, just an absolute honor. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, we met back in 2017. We've got history. Uh, you're one of my favorite people. And I, and I don't just tell you that while I'm looking at you, I tell you that behind your back, uh, uh yeah, other people. I'm like, you need to, you need to meet Jason. Here, man. You, you, you'll, you'll benefit from his books and from his messages. You need to just get to know him. Um, and so a little bit about me there. I mean, I, I pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, Dominion church. And I know a lot of our fellow, uh, Taconians as, uh, they've been come, come to be known or have been visiting as a result of the community of rethinking God with tacos, oh, which has awful. been wonderful. Uh, I host my own podcast, uh, 
the kingdom is for everyone, a place to discuss righteousness, peace, and joy. Um, I've got my own online school called Present Truth Academy, and we're getting ready to jump into a 10-week study. This is perfect for this conversation, a 10-week study on union with Christ, uh, the mystery hidden now revealed. And so just got a lot of things going on. But I would say above and beyond all that, uh, this this is what I love, the relational dynamics, true friendships, yep. brotherhood. Yep. Uh, this is where the gold is. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Bro, you guys check out uh, Matthew, uh, uh, All everything he's just mentioned. Uh, I can't endorse him enough. I love you, man. Love doing life with you. Like you said, that that's what this is about. And um, as far as uh, Rethinking God with Tacos, we've got a Facebook group that uh, Matthew already noted. You can check us out there. There's some sweet community taking place. We have an Instagram account under the same name. You can follow us there. Lots of reels and uh, short snippets of uh, some of these podcasts. And, um, you know, we're a listener-supported podcast, so uh, if you want to participate in that way, you can go to afamilystory.org where you can give or and or also sign up for our mailing list. Uh, Other than that... uh, this is a profoundly brilliant conversation with uh, Dr. Chris Green, uh, and I think it's going to bless you. Man, thanks, Matthew. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Love you. Love you too, bro. Chris, we got you back on, man. Yeah, it's it's so, been a couple years, but I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be it back. is so. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm. I. I tell you what. Uh, I knew you a little bit three years ago. Uh, but I'm, uh, I've gotten to know you a whole lot more. We just had Charathon. We were talking about that beforehand, and uh, she said to pass on hellos, but I guess you guys were already connected. Uh, man, this has been uh, – I'm so grateful for you, so grateful for what you're running at, um, all the places that you're uh, teaching and sharing. Um, could you just share a little bit, though, for the audience, where you're at right now, uh, what you're doing? Sure. So I have a handful of jobs and responsibilities. One, I'm a professor at Southeastern University, professor of public theology there, teaching systematics, historical theology, ethics, of exploring the relationship between theology, Christian practice, public issues. I'm, in fact, I'm in Florida right now. I'm sitting by a pool, as you can see, okay. at a friend's house, because I'm here teaching our doctrine and ministry course on communication and preaching and then I will, at the end of this week, I'll also do a couple of classes on contemporary theology, kind of exploring some current issues for master students. I'm also Bishop of the Diocese of St. Anthony, which is a charismatic Anglican communion. Uh, it's a new, it's a relatively new diocese. I, I was just elected and consecrated as Bishop recently. So that's a pastoral side of, of, right. of what I do. And we're, my wife and I and our kids, well, our two youngest, we moved from Oklahoma to Tennessee to kind of focus on that work over the last last year. And then, you know, I'm also doing traveling and speaking and writing. So, yeah, a, a few irons in the fire, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> and your background was Pentecostal holiness, if I recall. That's right. Oh, uh, right. uh which is where you first became fascinated uh, with mm. scripture. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, man. Um, there's, there's a, 
a bunch of folks that were really excited that uh, listeners that were really excited that we were having you on. And so I had a bunch of questions come in, but there was one major theme, one thing that's burning in, I know, uh, Matthew's heart as well as mine around the, this conversation around union. Uh, I think there's been a great awakening for us moving away from this uh I grew up uh, with in the context of separation where a father looks away at the cross and that yep. was woven yep. into so many aspects of my understanding and all things. Yes. And there's this quote floating around the internet right now with your face on it that oh, no. I thought, I, <laughs> I thought, wow, this is next level. I got to have him talk about this, but Jesus doesn't have to visit John the Baptist in prison. Mm-hmm. He is John in prison. I think yeah. this is a good place to start, maybe, if you could break that thought down for us, uh, and I think we'll be, uh, we'll be well served. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I think, I think that came up in the Matthew class we're doing in Open Table. But what I'm, what I'm arguing there, what, what I've become convinced of, and it's not like an original idea, I think it's what the text, what the Gospel of Matthew is saying, is that Jesus identifies so completely with us that what we suffer, he suffers, right? So you get the oddity in the, in the gospel of Matthew, in which at the end in Matthew 25, we're told, you know, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And he specifically identifies those who visiting those who are in prison amongst other things, you know, the being with those who are sick and caring for the stranger clothing naked, but going to those who are in prison. But of course, earlier in the gospel, John the Baptist, who's heralded Christ's coming, is in prison. And he sends a question to Jesus, to Jesus' disciples, you know, are you the one or should we look for someone else? Like, is there another right. coming? Right. And so once you get to Matthew 25 and you realize, like, the, the weight that Jesus himself puts on visiting those who are in prison, it it seems obvious to ask, well, why didn't you go to John in prison then? Right, <laughs> like, right. If this matters to you in that way, why didn't right. you do it? Right, And as soon as you ask that question, you realize what he's saying is you should go to those in prison because I'm in prison with them. Wow. That's how you come to me. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. Not you're like me when you go to prison. Right. So that's the way we typically imagine it. Like to care for those who are disadvantaged, who are suffering, like that's to be like Christ. We think of Christ's likeness as caring for. Yeah. But in the gospel of Matthew, at least... This identity with Christ comes in the suffering, not in the caring for the suffering, but in the yeah. suffering. So that yeah. he's not like those who go to John in prison. He is John in prison. Right. And notice, not just like John in prison, the identification is more radical than that. Right? That John <laughs> is who he is because Christ is his creator and his, his redeemer. So like John isn't John apart from Jesus being Jesus to him. Yeah. And and so on with all, all the rest of us. So I think that's that's what I that's the nerve, you know, that I'm touching there. Gotcha. That's beautiful. I, uh... If if I could, can I lean in a little bit more on that thought? Um, so I was sharing with mm-hmm. Jason, I'm I'm in a very obsessive mode right now, studying Union with Christ. I have an online school, so we devote 10-week studies around certain subjects, and Union with Christ is how we're launching this year. And uh, so I came across yeah. your, your little meme that Jason had mentioned earlier, and we actually were able to spend some time together last weekend. And in studying for one of the sessions, um, I was leaning into humanity crucifying God. Uh, And so, you know, 
Brian Zahn talks about how good we are at that, how good we are at deicide. Uh, and so I was yeah. I was pondering union, and we see humanity crucifying God on the cross. But then Paul leans in and says, well, we're crucified with Christ. So then I, as I was kind of maybe piecemealing that thought together, while humanity's crucifying God, we're being crucified with Christ at the same time. Uh, and so yes. in your estimation, is that is that also that sense of leaning into this radical union that you're touching on? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I, I think we, we need to make a distinction. Ultimately, there's no separation here, but we need to make a distinction between the union we have with him as his creatures. Yeah. We can't not have that. Like to simply, mm-hmm. simply to exist is already to exist in communion with him, right? That, that he holds all things together. And so when, when Colossians three says that Christ is all and in all, I think we can, we can make a distinction here between what's true of us as creatures and what is made of us over time through grace. So what we are by nature and what we become by grace in both ways, there's union. Mm-hmm. So we don't go from disunion to union. Yes. We go from a unity that is natural to us as creatures who are made so that Christ is all. His word holds all things together. Like he is the word in which all things have their being, right? They're, all things are from him and in him and through him and for him. That's right. just what right. things are, right? Like if you if you keep digging at who and what I am, and you were able to get past, and of course this isn't possible, but you were able to get past what's observable or measurable, what what I can see. What you would come up against is that which I cannot see. Again, this is impossible, but what you would encounter there at the depth of who I am, at the source of who I am, is nothing but the life of Jesus. Right. So that yeah. that's just what my nature is. But by grace and friendship with God and communion with God. I'm drawn up into a graced share in that unity, mm-hmm. which is, is personalized, right? It becomes yeah. something that's not just true of me naturally because I'm a creature, but personally, I I enter into that partnership and equality and friendship and intimacy with God that yeah. God has with God and that God wants us to have with God. Mm-hmm. So when when we talk about unity, we we want to make sure we're saying both of those things, I think. That yes. we're moving from unity to unity. Mm-hmm. Right? We're we're moving from a natural unity to a graced mm-hmm. unity that is the perfection and flourishing of that nature exceedingly. So to to your point about the cross, I think Jordan Wood, who's a excellent reader of Maximus, I think is as good as there is on Maximus, he he points to this often. Again, he being Jordan, but also this is an emphasis in Maximus's work that what is happening at every point of creation's story is that upholding of all things in unity, the creative act of God and what we might call the sanctifying or deifying work of God to bring creatures up into the uncreated life of God. So Jordan, I heard him once. I don't remember where this was. You may have heard it too. That he was talking about when Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a sense in which he is saying that to the human beings who have crucified him, who yeah. should be one with God enough 
not to do this to him, mm. not to do it to anyone, not to do it to yeah. the thieves or to or to themselves yeah. mm-hmm. or, or to to anyone. And so there's a way yeah. in which, as Jesus will say in the Gospel of John, your own scriptures say you are gods. So why aren't you living that? Right. And I think that's a really provocative reading of that cry that helps us remember this. This is. This is what we're saying, really, when we say that we're meant to be one with God. It's easy for us to bandy that idea around, but when you take it seriously, what it means is my my life, my being, my action, my words, my presence <laughs> should be taken up into a radical identification with God so that what's happening to me is happening to God and what is happening with God is happening to me and in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty simple guy. I, I uh, half the things you just said went over my head, <laughs> and yet uh, I, I'm a, I call it I'm a relational theologian. I, I mm. get through it. I get I get there through the back door. I get there because I'm convinced that God is love, and He looks like Jesus, and 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 so uh, it looks like this practical theology where I'm like, well, what does this look like? What is it? What does it mean? What what is it that you're saying? Where does the rubber hit the road as far as um, I'll just tell you this story for me. I, you know, uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal charismatic church, uh, where scripture was inerrant and, um, in, in, in ways that, uh, were absolute. You took it literal. Uh, I didn't have the, um, the bandwidth to probably take the road you you've taken to be able to actually go to, I had to go the relational route and basically understand that, um, some of these ideas about who God was were dis, uh, disconnecting me from being able to trust him, were actually yes. cutting me off from being able to climb up into his lap. And so I have a real good understanding of what love is. I grew up in a loving home. I understand what trust is. I understand how to get to intimacy. I'm a relational theologian. And, and so for me, I didn't tell anybody I was doing this, Chris. I didn't know I was allowed to do it. But I stopped reading Scripture, and I just read the Gospels. And then I really just broke it down to John, resetting my lens with Jesus as perfect theology. And that's where I discovered union in a way that I, I can't even – it was experiential. It was a, an awakening to a love that uh, did not have separation. In it. And that's when I discovered that, the, you know, the, the, the prayer Jesus prayed, that I pray that you would be one just as we are one, just as I'm in the Father. And you're me, that, that, this revelation of Jesus living from this place of intimacy and union. And that's when I began to go back and, and uh, read Scripture, read Old Testament, and start to listen to guys like you who start to give give me perspectives and ways by which to understand it. But um, I guess I, I, what, what I'm asking is, um, where's that? Where did the rubber hit the road for you? I, I know your story. I know even as a young as a young child, uh, you're, I, I can't remember some Old Testament story of horror and sorrow yeah. that that sets that set your heart afire where you're like love isn't like that god isn't mm-hmm. like that and yep. uh and yep. then set you on a path it was the story of Aiken. the story of Aiken, that's right mm. yeah <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's I, I think there were you know this this is a hard it's hard to talk about ourselves accurately i think because we're and we can we can know a lot, but there's always more going on in our own lives than we can ever really catch up to. So I think, right. and and I think as we grow, 
mature. We we remember we remember it differently. Not not necessarily in in ways that are not always radically differently, but still uh, there are right. shifts, sometimes subtle shifts in the way that we right. remember it. Yeah. I I I think I think this is true then. So I say all that to say I think this is true. <laughs> I I think I've kind of always had a sense of God's nearness. Yeah. I think this is one of the reasons that I never quote unquote deconstructed, even though I I really rethought everything I was taught. Right. So I, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but I don't think so. I mean, I I think pretty much everything I was taught was wrong. Even the stuff that was right was taught in the wrong way. <laughs> like, right. Like what, what people meant by it, or at least what I thought they meant by it was wrong. So I had to rethink everything, but I never had a sense of estrangement from God or, I mean, yeah. of course there have been seasons of doubt. I don't think you can be honest and not experience doubt. So it's not, I'm not saying I've never doubted by any means, but I am, I am saying I've, I think I've always had a sense that God is good. Yeah. That God is good in this particular way. And I, I, I don't actually think that's unique to me by any means. Man, I think there's good. an instinct. I think this is what scripture is talking about when it talks about childlikeness, that there's a, there's a way in which all of us at our clearest know this to be true. One way or another, we know it to be true. Now, how we, how we language it, I don't know, but I think, I think, I think all human beings, when they're right, when they're clear, and I think we're, most of us are most clear when we're young, when we're right. children. I think we, in that, in that sense of moral perception, I, th I think we know that, that God is good. I, 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 so I, that was my story. I, I've always known he was good. At five years old of age, I gave him my heart and encountered his affection, his love. I, you know, I was blessed and privileged to grow up in a home that modeled that for me and created liberties for me to, to rethink. My folks actually gave me a whole lot of room to be critical and thinking. Um, and so I, I, I too have never, in fact, that word deconstruction never really resonated with me. I can understand it, but the whole point is to remodel. The whole point is, is yes. uh, you know, otherwise you just got a mess. But yeah. uh, I will say that there was a huge shift in my life 15 years ago that that was a was still done in the context of a relationship where I, I knew Jesus. I knew my father. I knew Holy Spirit. I, I, they were, I would consider them friends. But there was a shift where... Uh, and I, I shared a little bit of it. Where two years, I only read. Uh, basically, it was this: these two thoughts. Um, Jesus's perfect theology empowered me in ways where I, I, I can't. It's like duh, but at the same time, it really empowered me. And and God is good as Jesus revealed. And then I had a I had a moment where where I had an, a conversation with God in which He invited me to. And the best way I can describe it is He, he invited me into living from instead of toward. And that's when I really discovered union. I discovered that that Jesus got the well pleased before he did this stuff. I'd been living my whole life trying to get to God instead of realizing that I am awakening to God within me and yep. that love is God within me and that Jesus is what, what God has to say about himself and is the perfect revelation of love laying his life down. This was as a talking as a relational fella who thinks of God in the context of 
of friendship and family. Jesus came to show God as a father. This was a huge aha moment for me. Uh, from that place, I, I then went back and began to do a whole lot of rethinking. And, and, and this is where people like you and Jerzak and Baxter uh, began to show me early church fathers, how to approach scripture, how to, how to begin to, to take that critical mind and think about things, uh, revisit uh, all kinds of aspects. Um, in, that, in that context, I, I finished a book a couple of years ago called Leaving and Finding Jesus, and I didn't know anybody who was speaking on this. But uh, I, as I said, I was listening today. I have a chapter in there where I'm talking about the master-slave paradigm. Mm. And for me, I got there differently uh, to some extent than you in, this, in the sense that I, I, I got there in this way. I said there's master-slave paradigm is a transactional paradigm, and, and, and Jesus revealed a, re, a relational trust. And, mm. and there was no master-slave language in the fall or in the garden there was no, there's no master slave language in heaven. There's no master slave language in the triune nature relationship between father, son, Holy spirit. Jesus is, in, is, is, uh, the revelation of the, he's incarnated. So there's no master slave relationship in the, in the nature of humanity to God. And, and then I broke it down very much talking in the context of, uh, uh of the passion version, uh, which refers to Jesus saying he never called us. Uh, uh, servant. He always called us most beloved friend, which to me, I don't know if it's right uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a interpretation, but I knew it resonated in my heart. Uh, but there's so much in that, in the light of where we are today, um, politically, and, and every aspect, I would love for you to break down some of this master slave. I think you refer to it as the narrative or master slave. I've got a whole lot of notes here, but um, mm. I, yeah, there's there's I, I there's like a logic to yeah 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 for sure. Thank you for that question, Jason. I think yeah. One way. To, let me step back just a moment and and say this because I I think those of us who were raised in kind of Bible Belt Christianity in one form or another, right? Even if it wasn't in the Bible Belt. That was the Christianity, the right. imagination shaped us. Yeah. I think one of the, it, it's easy to kind of point to its worst aspects, you know, the, the power struggles or the kind of literalist readings of scripture that created endless crises for, for people, crises of faith and, and intellect. I mean, yeah. But to me, Probably the most, the, the hardest thing to unlearn if you've been nurtured in that world, the hardest thing to unlearn is the conviction that if something is true, it's simple. That, that something is true, it's simple. And yeah. part of what I think we have to get free of is that, that idea that the truth is simple. Yeah. There, there's a sense in which the truth is simple, but not the way in which we think of simplicity, right? So let, let mm -hmm. me let, come at it with this famous line from Niels Bohr that the opposite of a truth is a falsehood, but the opposite of a profound truth is an equally profound truth. Oh my goodness, man. Mm. Wow. The opposite of a profound truth is an equally profound truth. I, I think what we have in Christology, right, is, is the profound truth, if we can put it like this, of God and the profound truth of being human are one in this person, Jesus. Like he is, as the tradition says, fully God and fully human. Yeah. yeah. So what he's doing personally 
through the course of his life is he's not only drawing together the divine and the human without confusion or mixture, he's actually bringing all opposites into alignment. So the, the reconciliation of opposites. Ian McGilchrist talks about this from like a neuroscientist perspective, and he talks about right. the ways in which we wisdom is the reconciliation of opposites. Okay. Wisdom is the reconciliation of opposites. Can I hold those different profound truths at the same time? Right. And yeah. I, I step back to say all that because I think we, we have to recognize that when we're doing theology of any kind, there are ways in which something can be said that are true and profoundly true. And there are ways in which that same thing can be said in ways that are not true or right. are true in only simplistic ways. So, for instance, there mm -hmm. is a way in which I am a slave of God. Paul refers to himself right. that way. You see, sure. I'm a slave of the Lord, yeah. right? Yeah. Jesus says of himself, I am among you as one who serves. Yeah. That's right. And in Jesus' world, like you can't. In English, we can kind of neatly sort servants from slaves, but in Jesus' world, you cannot. I mean, Jesus is saying, I'm a right. slave. I'm your slave. Yeah. Yeah. I'm among you in that way. But that is a profound truth. It's not a simplistic one, right? Mm. What Jesus right. is saying about himself is mysterious, right? It is a subverting of what the word slave even means. When Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ, he's not saying that Christ has taken over my life in such a way that I no longer exist. I, I was just reading today. Here, here's a good example of this. And I won't apologize for taking a long time to answer this because this is this no, is a no, hard this question. Is good, man. Yeah, right. Right. yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Elliot, who, you know, this article refers to her as the queen of the purity culture, right? So her husband, of course, is the one who was martyred. She right. ends up eventually becoming the the spokesperson for complementarian marriage from a woman's perspective and mm -hmm. really again it may, may not quite be fair but the queen of purity culture right the, the woman right. who who gives a a theological defense from a woman's perspective i mean she was brilliant a a, a woman's perspective on what this should be what marriage should be and so on right but in in her third marriage with this article was about that was about her third marriage which was i mean Abusive might not be the right word, but it's not not the right word. I mean, it was incredibly right. restrictive and oppressive. And where he, this third husband, is dictating, you know, everything she's doing, when she's speaking, when who she's with, whether she can see her children and her grandchildren, you know, just dictating every part of her life and in a way that's out and out miserable. And one thing that emerges during this period of her life is that she starts to talk about submission as the complete loss of yourself. So she, wow. she, she says, and I can't quote it off the top of my head, but she, she's asked, I think this is in Christianity today. She's asked a question about what to do if you're, you know, in a difficult marriage, like how, do, how does a woman supposed to relate to the husband? And, and she appeals right. to that notion of losing your life. If you lose your life, you'll find it that the, mm -hmm. the wife has to lose her life in relation to her husband. Right. So I would sure. say that's, slavery yeah right in the mm. simplistic sense and it's evil it's evil yeah and the re the yeah. reason someone like yeah. elizabeth elliott can make a mistake like that even though she's a, a brilliant and godly woman is that she's confused 
a mysterious, profound truth mm-hmm. for the simplistic. That's good, and Chris. It, there, the moment we do that, the moment we simplify, we violate. Yeah. Right? The, the moment we simplify something that's true in this mysterious way down to something that's no longer mysterious, we violated it. And then we end up yeah. reading scripture, mm-hmm. which is talking in profound truths, simplistically. And now we're talking in simplistic truths that are actually falsehoods. That's right. what's happening. We wow. do master-slave way that Elizabeth Elliot was doing it, right, at that yeah. point mm-hmm. in her life. So my goodness. what I want to say then is that in the, in the simplistic sense, God is not a master and we are not slaves. In the simplistic mm-hmm. sense, mastery is evil and slavery is evil. Yes. Mastery is corrupt, and yeah. the proof of that corruption is what happens to slaves. That there are slaves at all is an exposure that yeah. Yeah. mastery is evil. So God has called us to be delivered from mastery, not just from slavery. He doesn't just set us free from slavery. He sets us free from the desire to be masters in that simplistic sense. <laughs> but there are profound senses in which I can give my life to Christ. This is what Paul will say. I'm a slave of Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. But he doesn't stop there. He's not possessed by Christ. His life has not been taken over and controlled by Christ. Evil possesses and dominates. Yeah. But what Paul says is, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life that I live. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's good. That's a profound truth. Right. Yeah. If he had stopped with "I yeah. no longer live, Christ lives in me," that's just possession. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. He's that's he's so now just manifesting someone else's presence. But Jesus' personhood doesn't edge out my personhood. Jesus' life doesn't make doesn't take over my life. It doesn't. It, Jesus is not a vampire. Right. He doesn't eat yeah. up my life to <laughs> yeah. feed his own. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Demons yeah. possessed. So, yeah. Holy Spirit fills. Evil drives out personhood, Jesus brings it to flourishing. So when Jesus is present, I'm more myself. And this is why Paul will say, I no longer Christ lives in me. The life that I live has been made possible by Christ living in me. (laughs) Christ Hmm. in you, the hope of glory. Christ who is your life. I mean, and on and on and on. Paul makes this point again and again and again and again and again. So union doesn't mean that my existence has kind of been overtaken by Jesus. It means it's been filled up and brought to fullness. This is why wow. the culminating fruit of the Spirit is self-control. There it is. Yeah. The more the Spirit has sway in my life, the less control God has over me and the more control I have over myself. Beautiful. Like To be absolutely mm-hmm. yielded to God is to be totally free. That's it. Absolutely free. Right? So these are profound truths, right? So you can see now why I'm saying like, we can't talk about this well until we kind of fight through the thicket of the simplistic truths that that we were often engaging with, thinking that's what Scripture is talking about. Yeah. Right. I I, I asked this, but you got a thought. Uh, let me just add this one. Th- um, I love the, the simplistic and profound. I ask this question often, was Jesus the most obedient person that ever walked the planet, or did he only do what was in his heart to do? And the answer is Yes. And I think it's it's an invitation into the simple and the profound. It's inviting you into the value for obedience, but understanding Jesus was living in the expression of love. And when you're living in, in the context of union, you're doing the things out of what you said. Self-control is the greatest evidence that you're free. 
It's, mm -hmm. you know, the person with yes. the most self-control in the room is the person with the greatest liberty. Uh, yep. Is that a fair way of uh, delineating those two thoughts? Um, it is. Powerful, man. It's powerful. I, and uh, in this subject, uh, you talked about Howard Thurman, a mentor of uh, MLK, a theologian, yep. correct? Um, yes. Would read to his grandmother, but wasn't allowed to read uh, uh, the, the, the works of Paul, I think, except for First Corinthians. First, First Corinthians 13, 13 yeah. Uh, because uh, it had been uh, maybe the wrong, maybe the right language is it had been simplified and used. This this master slave domination mindset had been used in a way to uh, control. Is that correct? Well, you, I'll quote you. You said when the when you think in terms of master and slave, you will always justify the power, the powerful, no matter what you do, because you've already assumed that to be powerful is the greatest good. That mm. any other good comes from the good of those in power. Uh, I, I felt like that was so profound in explaining um, what we see taking place, particularly in 2024, as we step into a, um, a year in which the church will, will be further exposed in some respects. Is that a fair way of saying it? That absolutely is. I mean, the I think it's so, you know, it's hard to talk about these things in ways that the people that most need to hear it can hear it. Like one yeah. of the things that, you know, as, as a pastor and as a theologian and as a parent and as a friend, <laughs> I, I, I want to learn to talk about these things in ways that don't rally the people who already agree with me. Good. But actually it is, if possible, hearable by the people yeah. who, think they disagree with me or, or at least have been postured to disagree with me, but recognize that this, this is not about agreement between me That's and good. them one way or another, yeah. right? It's about fidelity to Christ and what, what is in God's heart for, for the world. So I, I think, yes, what you're saying is a fair way to put it. I think I just want to make sure that I'm, not only fair, but that the spirit of the ways in which I'm doing it, engaging in that conversation no, it is it again, I don't I don't I don't think we can worry about um man, this is hard to talk about well. I don't I don't think we can fret too much about not being offensive. I'm not saying something like I don't want to offend. Notice like I, I'm not saying I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or like you can't be a truthful person if you're always if your anxiety is not to offend. So I'm that's sure. not what I'm. I'm not anxious. No, I, about. I get. I it. just want to have the spirit of engagement that allows the truth to be heard. Like to, yeah. and, and this plays out. I mean, most most often for me, you know, it plays out at home when I'm talking to my wife and my kids. Like, it's 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 so vital. Not just that I'm right. I mean, being right is in many times beside the point, not always, but sometimes yeah. it's beside the point. Yeah. And it's the, they, they're hearing tone, facial expression. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. They're catching so much more than what it is I'm saying. And I, I want to be a truthful person in that fullest sense, not just to be right about things, but truthful 
which yeah. is inseparable from being loving and patient and mm-hmm. humble Amen. Yeah. and all, all that goes with that. Yeah. Hey guys, interrupt me for a second. Glad you're here. So thankful for this podcast. Thankful to get to do this with friends. Thankful for Derek and all of those who've navigated it with us. Listen, this podcast is done under our nonprofit, A Family Story. 12 years ago, I had a vision and I wrote it down. I'm going to read it to you. Family Story is a relational community of creatives, family and friends. I see all of us as creatives. We do life together. We envision and express God's love through our gifting and grace. We are worshipers, dreamers, storytellers, and preachers, a family of dads and moms, brothers and sisters, daughters and sons, united by a passion to know and reveal God's perfect love. I feel like I'm seeing the fulfillment of some of that vision 12 years ago. The mandate on A Family Story was to create media content catalytic for an encounter with the love of God. AfamilyStory.org is our website. I encourage you to go there. There's a whole lot of media content there. There's books and articles. Uh, there's films, some music, and uh, this podcast. That's the home of Rethinking God with Tacos, which is pretty dang cool. It's been life-giving, as I said, the community around it, the community of creatives of family and friends that's growing. Uh, it's blown me away. And so... I'm thankful. I'm thankful uh, for all the relationships, connections, and I'm thankful for all those who've given. Rethinking God with Tacos is listener-supported. If you'd like to support us, you can go to afamilystory.org. Again, we're a nonprofit. And I would encourage you to join us on our Facebook group. Uh, Follow us on Instagram, all the socials. Uh, If you're curious how to find me on the socials, it's at Jason Clark is. Otherwise, like, share, uh, write a review on iTunes or Spotify, uh, tell your mom. We really are loving doing this, and I'm so thankful for everyone here. All right, it's time to get back to the podcast. Go ahead, Matt. Would you think that's, um, speaking along that, that train of thought, how Jesus was able to, well, the content of the Sermon on the Mount was able to be so received and and so profound because he's obviously saying truths that are counterculture they go against the religious order of the day he's dignifying the least of these those that i mean in terms of just class were were property or just ignore it altogether just the throwaways and when it's all said and done he he lays out this sermon that today is still highly offensive I found greatly offensive in religious circles. When you start talking about peacemakers and all these attributes that reflect his character and nature, but then right there towards the end, I love that little thought that says the crowd marveled at his words. And what was so different was unlike the, the scribes and the Pharisees, he spoke with such authority. And so anytime I see that word authority, I also think of conviction or as you're saying, there was so much love emanating from these words that are extremely controversial. He could, he could have intentionally gone on the warpath just to offend and just to criticize, but because it was founded in love, he could have this kind of conversation, and truth is what was received even beyond factually a lot of the things that were being said. It, it, mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah, it, it does, I think. And yeah. it, it opens up this interesting line of thought, I think, about and 
I think that the, you know, so let me put it like this. I think that Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, the saints, they, they come to a place in which they can say, they can speak with a kind of directness, simplicity in the good sense. But for most of us, we can't and shouldn't talk like that. Because for when we're talking in those ways, we mean them simplistically, right? So mm -hmm. we've got to be careful. Yeah, I so like that. I, I'm thinking specifically yeah. about how how Jesus was heard. I, th I think if we if we pay attention to the gospel, if we if we read it closely, the Gospel of Matthew in particular, I don't think anyone ever really knows what Jesus is saying. Like I don't think anybody understands him. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like I don't. I don't yep. think there's an instance in the Gospel of Matthew where people are like, "Oh, I mean, e even after the resurrection, even even in the right. what, <laughs> the passage we wrongly call the Great Commission, like like all right. of that." I don't think that anybody really knows what he's saying. Right. And I, <laughs> what you're putting your finger on, Matthew, is that, but there was a way he had of talking that had a certain effect on people that yeah. they didn't mm -hmm. they didn't know what it was except to know it wasn't like anything else. Yeah. Yes. Their hearts burned. Hmm. Yeah. Like that, that's the Lucan image, right? The Emmaus yes. Road. So yeah. there's a way which something about how he carried himself and how he spoke, it wasn't like anything else. And I, I want to yeah. emphasize that. It wasn't like anything else. It wasn't like the people that were what they had thought was peacemaking any more than it was like the people that were troublemakers. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Yeah. It wasn't just unlike the the people they disliked. It was also unlike the people they revered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus was doing yeah. something altogether different. So I think yeah. what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, I think part of the reason I, I don't even know if it's right to say it was controversial. I mean, there are aspects of it that certainly were, but I think it it truly was apocalyptic in the sense that mm -hmm. it nobody knew, and I, I still don't think we do now know where to stand in relation to it mm -hmm. yeah. we, we take out phrases or aspects yeah. of it and we stand off we square off against this or against that or we embrace this or that but i think everything jesus said and did you know it it is it's inseparable from who he is and so you can never really get an angle on him and and once you think yeah. you have done that you're using him and, yeah, I, and I think good. it's possible to use Jesus, whatever your politics is, right? So if your sure. politics is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm not both sidesing here. I don't mean mm -hmm. the left is just as guilty mm -hmm. as the right. I mean, in any given situation, some people yeah. are going to be yeah. more responsible than others. So it's not yeah. always equally, you know, the blame is not equally felt or, or just. But yeah. that said, I do think there are ways in which those who are drawn to readings of the Sermon on the Mount with what we might call left-leaning politics can use it just as much as people, the right, refuse to engage it. Right. What we yeah. have to, and, and here I'm deeply influenced by Bonifer, like we, we don't get to use anything Jesus says one way or another, right? He's the one, we take it all and the life he's called us to live, or we take none of it. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we, we can't and shouldn't learn from his teaching. It just means we can't wield it. Mm. Right. That's yeah. good. Let, me, let me head off another. You mentioned Howard Thurman. 
like Howard Thurman and MLK, I don't think they're yeah, probably... using Jesus teaching about nonviolence. I think they've learned from it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good. But if I get on social media, if you know, if I jump on Twitter, or I'm not on Twitter anymore, but if I, I jump on Instagram or whatever, or a podcast like this one, and I start railing against people because it's playing what Jesus said. Now I'm sure. Using yeah, it. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The difference yeah. is, it does my lived life reflect the fact that I'm obeying what he said? If I'm speaking from that place, then it's not using it. I'm learning from him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if my life is not the, if I don't have the moral authority that comes from having lived it, then I can't use it. Like yeah. that's using God's name in vain. And I, I think, gosh, that is a. That's a constant danger, right? In this world mm-hmm. where we have, it's just too easy to put our opinions out there, right? Yeah. It's too easy to, to, to share. And I, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners as this, as this goes. <laughs> I, uh, I, I love it's, it's funny. Cause even, um, and I, I forget sometimes I start to ask a question and I, and obviously it comes with the context of, of the political landscape we're in. But yeah. but I love that you've started the answer with as a pastor in in the context of as a leader as a husband as a dad I'm like okay like these are the places where it's got to land and all this is where the rubber hits hits the road for me I'm a storyteller I'm a communicator I'm a writer uh, and so I I am um, I think in the context um, of narrative and I and and so for me um, I want to understand. Uh, even the conversation we're having around uh, master and slave, what 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 was fascinating to me is, uh, I want to understand. Uh, Jesus didn't play this dualistic game. He he. Right. I want to understand what we can what we can trust. I'm looking for where we can place our trust, and this the revelation of of of, of a greater love that lays its life down for a friend, is is the is the place where I can trust. And then everything else is understanding. So for, for me, when I'm listening to you break down uh, the, from, I, I guess, I guess it was two years ago that you taught uh, God is not a master. It was bringing uh, an understanding to how we're here and how we play this dualistic um, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil game and how it enslaves us. And it's the opcruciform love. It is the opposite of um of what it means what salvation means it's the opposite it's it's actually the antithesis of what jesus looks like um so it's more about understanding can i I challenge that let me let me challenge that there this is what i was saying earlier about like i do think that let's let's name names here just for a moment just just so people know what we're saying so i think there is christian nationalism let's let's go with that sure yeah, and so much of what is circling around Republican politics right now, and yeah. evangelical alignment with that, support for Trump, and all of it, like that. If we're talking about those dynamics, there okay. is a lot of that that is opposed to the way of Jesus, for sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, I mean, let me be on the record. Like, there is a lot of that that is. Out yeah. and out. I didn't know we were going here, man. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. It's quite all right. I, all right. I, I mean, I don't think what I'm about to say shouldn't be controversial. Okay, good. I should good. It really shouldn't be. And of course, feel free to edit it out. It's your podcast. No, 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 no. It's good. <laughs> but 
What we have to be careful of discerning about is when we call that out, that we're not setting, that it's not wrong because it's opposed to this other simplistic idea. It's wrong because it's false to who Jesus is. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In his fullness, it's opposed yeah. to who Jesus is. Yeah. And as Christians, we either are going to obey him, follow his way, take him at his word, do what he's yeah. called us to do, or we're going to find excuses not to do that, to hedge our bets, to find other ways to do what we really want to do on other fronts, because we don't trust him. We don't think he's wise. We don't think he knows what he's doing. We don't think he can actually order our lives. So right. the problem with Christian nationalism, like, again, we can have this conversation yeah. <laughs> at the purely political level. I think Christian nationalism is a bad idea Sure. on the political level, apart from the theological. Whether I was a Christian mm-hmm. or not, I would disagree right. with it. Right. right. But right. as a theologian and as a pastor and as a parent, yeah. like what I want my kids to learn here is that what's upsetting to me about so much about what swirls around Trumpism and the Christian nationalism of the, you know, the prophets who've Lance Wall now, that crew, that crew, what, sure. what troubles me about those folks is it is opposed to the way of Jesus. Right. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm happy to debate them about politics. I don't think they know what they're talking about politically sure. any more than they know what they're talking about theologically. <laughs> but my real grievance is they're taking the name of God in vain. They're right. undercutting the integrity of the gospel for the yeah. sake of political gain. So yeah. it's, and and they're doing it. Now, some of those people I called out, I mean, I think are, they're grifters, right? But most of the people involved are caught up in that movement are good people with good intentions who are at the mercy of propaganda and don't know they're at the mercy of propaganda. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason they don't know they're at the mercy of propaganda is that all of us are living in a culture that's built for propaganda. Yeah. Like we are, we are conditioned for simplicities. And when you're conditioned for simplicities, your instinct toward mystery will mean that you will have to develop some version of conspiracy to satisfy your sense that it's not that simple. Wow. Wow. So the more we simplify things, the more we awaken in people that panic that says things aren't this simple. And right. then because we're not, they're not wise. They've not been trained to think discerningly. And that's where you get conspiracy thinking. It it is a kind of manufactured complexity to keep things as manageable as possible. In fact, even more manageable than anything actually is. It's to make things manageable and also to satisfy that instinct that things aren't simple. Right. Right. So Mm. conspiracy theory, right, is only possible for people who are simplistic you can't be simplistic because it's not human and right. that mm. your nature will rebel against that simplicity. Yeah. And right. yet if you remain committed to, I want the certainty that comes with simplicity. I want the control that comes with simplicity. You'll end up with conspiracy. Like you, there's, there's no, there's really nowhere else for you to go. And these you'll are end all the, to other people. Well, these are all the things though around so for me, the understanding and, and, and what I was getting at, because I think that's brilliant, but theologically, if you have a controlling sovereign or you have a master, then 
theologically you become what you behold and so we create to some like that's for the thing where i'm going there's so much understanding around realizing that jesus wasn't here to reveal god as a master he was here to reveal god as a father in the context of relationship so it's not transactional anymore i think that's the thing that that, I, that if i'm poke I'm, I'm fascinated by is is how we got here and how our theology, our penal substitutionary atonement theories and our understanding of a God who looks away, how that has played a huge role in this moment. And then the political side of it is just uh, the fruit, if you will. Is that a fair way of? Yeah, yes, it is. I think I would add that those ideas were a reflection of us from the beginning, a reflection of our fracturedness, right? So, I think, and and there's a, a reciprocity, a kind of bad feedback loop that happens that people who are afraid, who live in the fear of death, yeah. if you do theology and preaching and prayer and spiritual direction and pastoral care from a place of the fear of death, but you're committed to the language of the gospel, right? So you, you've got the language of scripture and the language of the gospel, but your heart is still eaten up with the fear of death. If that's where you're coming from, then you will produce theological, uh, you will produce a vision of God, an an idol, an image of God Mm -hmm. that looks exactly like this God who is a dominant, violent, self-contradicted being of all power. Mm -hmm. And then that image, of course, is going to awaken fear. So that's the bad feedback loop, right? Like that yeah. that theology can only come from a place of fear, mm. filtered mm. through the language of Scripture. Right. Mm-hmm. right. But once you've built that image and now you're teaching it to your children and to your converts and discipling people in that likeness, then it awakens more fear. Mm-hmm. And it's... So yeah. difficult to break. I, I yeah. think apart from the work of the Spirit, it's impossible to break mm-hmm. that that cycle. But that's what has to be done. You have to break that cycle of fear of death. And this is why we need profound truth, because what Scripture says breaks the fear of death is love, right? Love drives mm-hmm. out fear. Yeah. Perfect. But oh, yeah. here's here's where we we're off. Yeah, perfect love drives out fear. But here's mm-hmm. the thing: you don't get to perfect love without the fear of the Lord. Yes, Break fear of the down. Lord is what leads you to the perfect love that then drives out the fear of everything else. So mm-hmm. that when we talk about the fear of the Lord, when Scripture talks about the fear of the Lord, it's really just a way of saying you're not afraid of anything. Oh, that's the fear good. of the Lord is to not fear anything. <laughs> That's what it means. Profoundly, that's what it means. Mm. Simplistically, simplistically, to fear the Lord is to fear the Lord as the greatest power there is. Right. And that's just another way of assuming that power is really the only good. At the end of the day, power is what's real. Power is what's Mm -hmm. good. God just has most of it, and therefore we should be most afraid of him. But that's not what Scripture is teaching. Right. Right. So when Scripture calls to the fear of the Lord, that leads to perfect love. You know, read not just Proverbs, but Isaiah 11, like the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the work the Spirit brings into our life, the gifts of the Spirit. That's inseparable from this fear of the Lord that Jesus lived with. So as I, I don't know if I talked about it in that sermon or not, Jason, but 
Like, Jesus fears the Father. Like, the fear of the Lord is the fear Jesus has in relation to the Father. Whatever that is, right, it, it looks nothing like intimidation. It looks nothing like anxiety. It looks nothing like the, that, the instinct for protecting oneself. So whatever we're naming when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we have to see it in the way Jesus relates to the one he calls Abba. And Come on. then, no, we, we need that at work in us. And in fact, it's given by the Spirit precisely to bring us to the place of perfect love in which we realize there are no fears. There's, there's nothing to fear. My goodness. That's so good, bro. That is so good. I love it. <laughs> and if, um, if I could, one more, one more line on that thought. Like, I've been in therapy often enough, and I've been around pastorally. I've been in situations often enough to know that when people are terrified, there's nothing you can say. Hmm. There's nothing you can say. Like there are things you can do, but there's nothing you can say. Yeah. And I think right now in our political moment, there's almost nothing we can say. There's stuff wow. we can do, but there's yeah, almost amen. nothing. Yes. Well, I and feel juice on it's if we're going to talk about it, it's only to talk about it in ways that set us up to do the stuff we have to do. And Come it on. looks like showing up, being present, being self-controlled, biting our tongue, yeah. listening, speaking up at right the right time in the right spirit to the right people. Like there, there are things that can be done, but those things are only going to come out of deep prayer and the discipline, the self-discipline the spirit gives that allows us never to, to be reactionary. Right. Um, so good. I, I doubt there's anyone listening who has a, 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 a darker view of what Christianity in America and its dominant forms is. I mean, I think it's, I've said to close friends of mine that I think, you know, far in the church's future, they will look back on the dominant forms of Christianity in America and say that those are the worst forms of Christianity the world has ever known. Wow. I mean, I think it's that bad. Yeah. So I'm not downplaying how bad it is. No. I'm just saying we can't. The reason it's so bad is because people are so caught up in fear, fear of fear yeah. of death and death of their way of life, death of what they've known to be true, death of their image of themselves, death of what they think of as Christianity. And, you know, I think I say in that sermon, Jason, at the very end, there's going to come a time in which what we know is Christianity is going to be dead. You did, yeah. Yeah. Church and won't it, be. No. Jesus won't be. But what you no. and I know as Christianity will be dead. Yeah. And if that terrifies us, then we, we don't know the Lord, not, not hmm. the way the Lord wants us to know it. So yeah. I think that that's, again, I don't know how to get at it other than to just keep showing up and but as close to the right spirit as possible. I love that you say, um, and my wife is, is, is the, the one that models this best for me, but love looks like something like, like we're in a spot right now where this movement, this deconstruction movement, if you will, some of it's reactionary, some of it's responsive, all of it's looking, I, I think for Jesus looking for the looking for Jesus looking for the looking for this this trustworthy person this trustworthy God um, and I feel like we're in a pivotal moment even in the church I don't know about 
what you might say about that. I, I do know there's a great hunger. There's an, a large audience right now that uh, think of Jesus as perfect theology and are rethinking everything else. I don't know if you yeah. have any thoughts on that. No, I, I but, shoot. Yeah, I got lots of thoughts. I mean, like, I think one thing that's always good to keep in mind is the church is never identical with the Christians I know. That's right? good. When I, so many times when people say the church, what they really mean is people I know who call themselves Christian. Yeah. Right. That's not, we don't, when we say the creed on Sundays, we're not saying we believe in the people you know who call themselves Christian. We're saying <laughs> we believe in the mystical body of Christ, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it's crucially, it's, it's, it's like Elijah, you know, why, what are you doing, Elijah? Why are you here? And he says, you know, I'm fleeing for my life. I'm the only one who hasn't bowed his knee to Baal. Like I'm the only prophet. And the Lord is like, no, there, there are thousands of others, right? <laughs> And so we we have to be careful here to realize that as dark as things are, as broken as they are, at the dominant popular level, what what I call conventional Christianity in America is disastrously bad. Uh, Bonhoeffer, to quote some people who would agree with me, which is basically any theologian or church leader from any other part of the world who's ever been here. <laughs> Like, like the when when Bonifer comes to New York and he's he's attending all of these liberal Protestant churches in New York City and the outlying areas, and he writes back home to say, "Man, preachers in America will preach about anything but Jesus." Wow! Like wow! Anything but. Jesus. And then, you know, he, <laughs> he he says, "I think this is in his diary. I can't remember if it's a diary or a letter, but he says, you know, Christianity. This this is a." Protestantism that reform has never touched. What he means wow. is like the Protestantism in America is not truly Protestant. It's it's some other some other thing, right? Then he travels right. through the American South, down into Texas, back through Georgia, Alabama, and kind of comes up against and of course he had encountered this in Harlem as well, black theology and spirituality, black Christianity, and recognizes, okay, but this is something different. Like this, this is not conventional. Wow. Right. So I think what we have to do is, is recognize that there are saints among us even now. And yeah. one of the ways we recognize them is that they're resistant to conventional Christianity and they're, <laughs> they're opposed to traditional yeah. Christianity. I'm not a saint by any means. I'm not going to ever be mistaken even for the, <laughs> like for a, a attendant to a saint, but I, I think we all have to be opposed to conventional Christianity. Like what we need is Christ and his church. We need the tradition. We need the faith that was handed on, but traditional Christianity become, I mean, conventional Christianity becomes conventional because it compromises with the power structures of the time. That's how it mm. gets that leverage. And That's we good. always have to be leery of that. Now, that doesn't yeah. say that I think it's always bad, but not there's bad and then there's bad. I think that mm -hmm. ours is especially bad, <laughs> like because I think it yeah. fundamentally distorts the the nature of God, the nature of humanity, the, the nature of salvation, the nature of Scripture. I mean, I think it's it's yeah. terribly, 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 terribly broken. And yet and yet I'm in no way hopeless because yeah, I think, amen. you know, it's right in the midst of that that darkness and brokenness 
Jesus is there. And as yeah. one of my favorite passages, I just shared this the other day on the blog from Cormac McCarthy's. It's one of the reasons I love Cormac McCarthy. Like his novels are dark and difficult, but there's always this kind of spark of hope. In right. Them. And in, right. in the passenger, one of his latest, one of the last two novels, the protagonist, the kind of man at the center of the mystery goes to the psychiatric hospital where his sister had been receiving care before she took her life. And he meets with one of his sister's old friends. So she was a diagnosed schizophrenic. This man is a diagnosed bipolar and amongst other things, he's in a wheelchair. Jeffrey is his name, this patient. And so he's talking to him and catching up on what had happened with his sister before she died. And his sister had had all these visions and they thought they were hallucinations, hallucinations for a schizophrenic. Right. But Jeffrey and Alicia was her name was convinced that these weren't hallucinations at all. She was seeing realities that most people can't see. And the book kind of leaves that open for you as a reader. But so he asked Jeffrey, um, she never saw Jesus though. Right. And okay. He says, no, 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 she, she did. She didn't see Jesus. He's like, but you have. And, and Jeffrey says, yes, I have. <laughs> and he says, well, what did he look like? And he says, well, he didn't look like anything. It's Jesus. <laughs> There's nothing for him to look like. There's nothing else like him. Hmm. And Bobby says, well, then how did you know it was Jesus if it wow. didn't look like anything? Wow. And his response is, are you kidding me? Like, right. it's Jesus. You can't, <laughs> you can't meet him and not know. Right. But then he <laughs> says, then he says this line that, man, I, 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 I want it on my tombstone. Come this on. is what he says. The Israelite heals. That's all you need to know. Wow. The Israelite heals. Wow. That's all you need to know. And like, that's what I want to leave as, as disastrous as I think our circumstances are. Hmm. The Israelite heals. Yeah. And that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. Come on, man. That's a, (laughs) that's a good place to leave us with hope. Amen. Yes. He is. I have no optimism that we're going to figure this out, but man, (laughs) he's good. (laughs) That's the, I uh, I see the years ago, I decided that whether there's a drop in the cup, or, you know, I, I said, I'm going to be, it's not halfway, it's not half full, it, whether there's a drop or not, I'm going to see it as overflow. And that's how we're going to do this thing. I like it. <laughs> hey, I listen, it, we, we've, uh, we're running up against our hour, but we haven't talked tacos, brother. We got to talk mm-hmm. tacos. Um, Rethink of God with tacos, it's that relational <laughs> dynamic, but we also have a conviction that there is no such thing as a bad taco. You got a taco mm. story? Are you a taco guy? Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'm 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 omnivorous. I don't know that we should be, but I am. <laughs> uh, do I have a taco story? <laughs> yeah, I do. Okay, here's a good one. This is a precious on. one to me. So I'm probably twelve or thirteen, and my dad takes me to Mexico for a missions trip. It's just I think it's just the two of us. There might be a couple other people along. And we're somewhere in some town, I didn't know the name then, and I certainly don't remember it now, between Matamoros and Mexico City, somewhere there. Yeah. And we're hungry. And there's a little stand on the road, on the roadside with like goats hanging, dead goats, carcasses hanging, Uh and an open fire. Yeah. And bottles of Coke. And so we, we sit down. They cut the chunks of meat off, cooked it right in front of us. You know, 
their tortillas too. Sprinkled some onions on there. Incredible. Incredible. That's our first and goat moment of bond with my, my dad. Yeah. So goat tacos in wow. some small town in Mexico. <laughs> with your dad. With the aesthetic. And that's our first goat taco. That's <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. We've been doing this. Do something that's that's interesting. Yes. We've been doing this four years at our first goat taco. Man, I love that. I uh uh, and I love uh, the, to me, the, the, the biggest part of that is with your dad. Obviously, that stuff is just yeah. precious. But Yeah, uh, I mean, that's the relation and, the, and built in, right? Yeah, that's yeah. it. It's what it, that's what it's all about at the end for me. It's, it, it, if, it, if, it can't, if it doesn't work in my family, if it doesn't work in my neighborhood uh, with my neighbors, yeah. Man, hey, uh, how do folks connect with you how do they find you how do they follow you? you're not on x you're not on twitter anymore but you're, you're still in some other places yeah i mean probably the easiest place to connect is the substack um just cwgreen.substack.com it's called speakeasy theology I, I do a podcast from there it's not a regular schedule i just do it as i can and i share sermons and reflections um, in fact there's a a written reflection that's a version of the sermon you heard that's on there. Okay. Um, so okay. that's probably the, the easiest place. Uh, I, yeah, I, I have to be for another conversation. We could talk about social media and how all that fits into, in, into this, but that's a, that's a good place. I think to start, I try to do long form stuff. I will say this much about it. I try to do long form stuff because I, I don't want to be the kind of thinker who isn't thinking about, the ramifications or implications of what I'm saying. Yeah. So like, I, I like, I prefer to work. This is one of the reasons I left Twitter. Like I, I didn't want for what I was saying to get cut off, kind of cut away from like one of the things we started today, when you asked me that opening question, like when you said Jesus is John the Baptist in prison, what did you mean? Like that's, right. that's where I want to work in that space. Like not just mm -hmm. snippets, Yeah. but once you've heard the snippet, how, how does it work? Yeah. Show me how it works. Uh, Give me the context. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And that um, I'm grateful, man. I, I, I can't uh, recommend folks uh, checking your stuff out and, and all, your teaching. You, you make um, the simple, uh, simple and the profound simple as well uh for us so i'm grateful for that and uh thankful for you and that you could we'll, we'll do this again i would love to do this again but yeah, uh, appreciate you that'd yeah. be good matthew's good to be with you too oh it's been an absolute thanks, honor man. and thanks for letting me co-host this this is this is privilege <laughs> it's good stuff hey guys thanks for listening to the podcast if you'd like to learn more about the podcast, myself or our guests, you can go to afamilystory.org. You can also go to afamilystory.org if you'd like to give. This is a listener-supported podcast, and we are incredibly grateful for your generosity. Hey, we have a Facebook group, and it's pretty cool. Rethinking God with Tacos. You can join us over there. Lots of incredible conversation and community taking place on that page. And you can also follow us on all the socials, Instagram, uh, TikTok, YouTube, and others. Hey, I'd love it also if you uh, went on iTunes and left a review or shared or tweeted or liked the podcast. Uh, let your friends know that this is a good place to hear about the love of God. 
I pray grace and wonder over your day.